As we continue to work our way through the book of Ephesians uh, over the last few weeks and for a couple more weeks, we'll be working our way through Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, uh, which are commands to slaves, slaves and masters. And as we've slowly been working our way through this section over the last couple weeks, I want to remind you uh, that as by way of introduction, we first looked at what does freedom and liberty mean if you are a Christian? If your hope is in Christ, what does it mean to be free and to have liberty? In our mind, we think that's the exact opposite of slavery, uh, because if you're a slave, you are bound by the will of another, you must do what your master says, where if you are free, you can do what you want when you want. And we looked at even a free man in Christ, his freedom is from sin and his liberty is to live in Christ. And so looking at that, we saw then that slaves, historically, biblically, uh, though they are in the most desperate positions of men and women, uh, they are those who are free from sin in Christ and free to function in the liberty of Christ. Uh, And they're encouraged in that. We also looked at last week the specific commands to slaves in three sections, looking at a slave's submission, what he must obey his earthly master, then a uh, slave's heart, he must do so with sincerity in the heart, how he must obey with a transformed heart, seeking to honor Christ, his true master, worthy of service. And then lastly, slaving in goodwill as to God. He must serve his master with a kind desire for the good of his master as he would serve him and a slave is not left without reason why he would live this way Uh, this passage doesn't leave slaves to the do what you're told and don't ask questions stylus of life it's not i'm over you you do what i tell you you don't ask any questions about it no there's encouragement here written by paul by the holy spirit by the grace of god for Christians. And this passage doesn't leave them there, and the context of the book has not left them there. It motivates slaves as they are living in the most desperate positions of life, why they ought to do so in the joy of Christ. So this morning, uh, we are going to spend our time looking over this section, verse 8, particularly this morning, what a slave must know. What a slave must know. He must serve Christ knowing his eternal reward is not limited by the current condition. You look with me at the passage again, chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. I'm going to read the whole section this morning, focusing on verse 8. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Father, we thank you for your grace and your faithfulness. I pray, Lord, as we look at these passages and the context and the application of these passages together this morning, that you would give us hearts that long to serve you. Lord, as as many on earth as all, as we were reminded this morning, uh, short-term trials are what we know. We rejoice, though, now for a little while, if need be, God. uh, We trust you that this is temporary. 
And we trust you that it is necessary. Uh, we, we trust you, Father, uh, that you know and, and you comfort us in the grief of trials. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, that trials vary, that we do not all have the same things to face, uh, that you love us in grace and you purpose in grace, uh, not to put us on some, uh, some blank slate that you think will work out, Father, but you know and love your people and that you plan and purpose for them, uh, that they would rejoice and know you and glorify you in all things. I pray, Father, this morning, uh, as we are a people used to comfort, uh, not discomfort, I pray you would help us, Lord, to have minds that are sharp, longing to hear your word, my, my mind longing to preach your word, Father, for your glory, uh, no matter our current circumstances. We thank you for uh, the grace of the reminder of the temporariness of, of our struggles and our pains, Father. I thank you for the many ways in which you have blessed us and you have given us grace uh, that we are, we are not burdened by many things in life, uh, but we have much freedom uh, to be free from sin in and much liberty with our lives. Uh, I pray you would help us to use that to glorify and to purpose you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this particular verse, this last verse, Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. It is returning to a pattern that we see throughout Scripture uh, that is returning to declare the truth that would motivate our action. As slaves are commanded hard things, they're commanded to be those who give up not just their earthly rights as a slave, but to do so willingly for the glory of Christ. Not just that they find themselves in a position that they can't get out of, but as we looked at the last few weeks, though they are stuck in a position they can't get out of, they are commanded to live in that position, being a slave under the will of another, to the glory of Christ, with sincerity of heart, out of good will, to honor God and to allow their master to see the grace and glory of God. And they're not left just to hear that, but they are declared to them as the truth that they must know in order to do so. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. This is the normal pattern of Scripture. As we've worked our way through Ephesians, I've reminded you again and again, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are doctrinal clarity. They proclaim the truth of Christ what Christ has accomplished. And chapters 4 through 6 are moral imperatives or commands to us. And so we have said often as a church, uh, it is important for us to remember that moral imperatives or what you must do stems from redemptive indicatives or what is true. What you must do in commands from Christ is rooted in what is true of Christ, what he has already done and accomplished. There is no command from Christ that is commanded to you to live out because you must do this to be accepted by him. The commands of the New Testament are rooted in the fact that Christ has already called you. You are already his. That's why the letters of the Bible are written specifically to Christians. This isn't written to all slaves. The Bible doesn't declare that all slaves should submit to their masters and obey them as they would to Christ because all slaves 
don't live for Christ. It declares that those who are Christ's, and so this is written to a specific audience, an audience who loves Christ, who has declared their love for Christ, who rests on the truth of what Christ has accomplished, and therefore are commanded to live in all circumstances for the glory of Christ. Or if you wanted to say it quicker and easier, moral imperatives flow from redemptive indicatives. I don't know if I keep saying that just because it brings Daniel and I so much joy to look at one another when we say it, uh, but it's very helpful if you understand that what it's saying, and I, I know the words are not ones we usually use, and so I think it's helpful to summarize it in that what we do is always motivated by what is true. What redemptive indicatives clarify in that is it's not just what's true. We don't just, we don't just grab four things because two plus two is four, and that's true. Redemptive indicatives declare that Christ has redeemed his people, and that's how we live. It's speaking of a specific truth, the truth of what Christ has accomplished. And so these slaves are not motivated just by, this is the right way to live, or this will be most easy and most comfortable for me. That's not true. Living as a slave is not easy or comfortable. These slaves didn't respond to the gospel because they thought, life's going to get easier if I do this. They responded to the gospel because they saw the reality of their sin. In the most desperate situations of earth where they could have seen themselves solely as a victim, they viewed themselves as a perpetrator against God. And they saw a necessity to repent and to trust in Christ. They knew that their sin over, is far more overwhelming than their slavery on earth. They knew that their eternal destiny was far more dangerous than this, their current circumstance. And like you, they rested their hope in Christ, believer. Not in hopes just that their current circumstance would get better. I don't think you ever live as a slave and don't hope that your current circumstance gets better. We all live hoping our current circumstances get better. I, I don't know if it's just me. I'm just waiting for a random act of 70 degrees to happen. Right? We're not against better circumstances, but our circumstances don't dictate to us what is true. And our circumstances don't dictate to us how we ought to feel and what we ought to want because we have known the grace and the glory and the hope of Christ. That we've been freed from the greatest slavery. We have been forgiven as the greatest enemies. We have been called and given grace by God, the only God and the greatest God. And these slaves are motivated by the same thing. They're motivated that God is good and faithful. And so they are reminded of that knowledge in verse 8, saying, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or a free man. Knowing that the life they live will be rewarded by Christ. And as Christians in modern America, this makes us uncomfortable. We don't like the idea of Christians getting rewarded, Right? For some reason, as American Christians who are highly against the idea of socialism, often, maybe not, maybe you're an American Christian that's pro-socialism, I don't know many, uh, but maybe you are. It's strange to me that we take such a socialistic approach to what we expect God to do in eternity. We assume that in eternity, uh, it is going to be that we're all kind of mechanical robots and we all just kind of live in line and in direct housing that Jesus has prepared for us, many mansions, but it's... It's like a track home. All the mansions are the same. They're all there just in a line. We get a tree. 
we get a house and as many bedrooms as you want because the kids are going to have their own mansion if their hopes in Christ. We have very funny views about what eternity is going to look like. We kind of build our theology after just some things we've heard about what eternity will be. And so we become uncomfortable with the idea that there would be some with greater rewards than others in heaven. Some who would be given uh, greater gifts in heaven. All Christians, all who have their hope in Christ, will be saved. But the Word of God is clear, and we'll look this morning, uh, that there are rewards in eternity. And those rewards are given out in a manner uh, that is not just even to everyone, but is fair in the display and the glory of God. This idea makes us uncomfortable. First, because we are used to this idea of being abused. Partly because it's been abused and it has been used to promote greed in this life. Many pastors and preachers by name preach not the gospel. They preach about prosperity in this life. It is a gospel that these slaves could not hear. Well, they could hear it, but they would have no hope in it. Because it is a gospel of temporary prosperity. It's a gospel of dramatic finance change now. Dramatic emotional change now. Dramatic power and position change now. And that is an abuse of the gospel. It is used to promote greed in this life, but our inheritance and reward is eternal, not temporal. Often we're also uh, concerned about it because we're partly confused. We're used to communicating earning salvation. Uh, we're used to people using it to communicate earning salvation. So we say some people will earn salvation because they do this, and some people won't. This is abused in the Catholic Church with the idea of purgatory, that there's a certain level you must reach to make it to heaven, and if not, you go to middle management until middle management moves you forward to heaven. It's an abuse of the gospel. But in the reality, uh, there will be a varying amount of rewards in heaven, and those rewards will display the glory of God forever without jealousy over one another. Remember, sin will be removed. So you will not live in life longing for what someone else has or hoping that you have something else. You will live in life seeing what anyone has, how anyone is living, and rejoicing at the glory of Christ. For all eternity, praising God for what he did through the gospel. And these slaves who find themselves in the most desperate situations of earth are encouraged to remember that they are living not for the rewards of men, but for the rewards of God who is faithful, who redeemed them. And this is rooted not just on their own ideas, but even in the letter Paul has already written. You need to know that the faithfulness of God to his promise of eternal reward is true. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3, and we have these declarations immediately uh, that because of the grace of God, all things are done to the praise of his glory. And we have a, a waiting inheritance that he has accomplished, that there would be transformation in the lives of believers for the glory of God. Look first at Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, and with which he has blessed us in the beloved, the beloved being Christ. Praise to God, because in Christ he has chosen to make us holy and blameless. That stands out to us, because we know we are not holy or blameless. We're aware of that. Do you know what else is going to stand out to a slave? That this decision in Christ was done before the foundation of the world. This wasn't about his earthly decisions that brought about to slavery, or his earthly birth that he had no choice in, or that he was placed into slavery. He's taking hope in the fact that this is what God has done and accomplished, and that he will not be one who is looked at as a slave, but he will be one called as a son. A son of inheritance. Not as common in the ancient world. As Danny reminded us a few weeks ago, and I've reminded you, uh, one-third of the population existed in slavery in ancient Rome. For financial reasons, reasons of war, reasons of all kind. Roman slavery uh, was not like American slavery. It was not based solely on race. Uh, it was based on class and labor in most situations and sometimes on war. And so there was a massive portion of the population that lived as slaves, knowing they would never be a son of inheritance. Knowing they would never see what other men saw in this life around them. But they knew that they were living, chosen by God, purposed because of Christ, to be blameless and holy before Him. And all of this would be to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Christ we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. He has lavished on us grace, so that in Christ everything created will one day be united to Him. It will sit in its appropriate place. His wrath will be poured out for eternity against injustice and rebellion. And he will be glorified for eternity to the praise of his glory. All creation will meet its right place in Christ, living for the glory of Christ. Verse 13 reminds that it is not just the apostles who proclaimed, but it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And all who have heard and hoped in Christ have also been called in Christ, secured in the Spirit. Their future inheritance is in Christ to what? The praise of His glory. As you look at chapter 1 of Ephesians again and again, what you see is according to the plan of God, the work of Christ has been accomplished, and the repeating, repeated refrain is this is done for the praise of His glory. 
that he will be glorified. How is he glorified? He is glorified in that he has caused us to be holy and blameless. He is glorified in that he has redeemed us from sin. He is glorified in that he is the God of forgiveness and grace. He has redeemed us through his blood, and he will forever be glorified because in him we are given an inheritance. We are given an eternal life of reward and wealth and grace and sin-free because of his kindness. As we read this morning in 1 Peter, an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you. And so our question then would be, how does this play out then for our lives now? What, is, what does that mean for us now here? And Peter answered it in one way. He said, uh, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the tested genuineness of your faith be more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the honor and the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That your life would function now through trials that are temporary, that are necessary, that do grieve you and vary between people, but all have the same results. The glory of Christ on display. What he has done in your life will become more clear. Exactly how Daniel described it this morning. That he is purifying your life to do what? To remove sin and to show the God-given grace of faith. That is in you. Your trials in your life are not a matter of God testing you to see if you will respond rightly. Christian, the trials of your life are determined by what Christ has already accomplished, and they are God manifesting to you what He has done. He is showing you the faithfulness that He has accomplished within you. Your trials do not burn you to see if you can survive. Your trials burn away the sin so you can see that in Christ you have been made alive. You are His. In Ephesians, we see life described a different way. It could be described the same as Paul writes also to slaves, but 1 Peter is written primarily to Christians who are suffering in this life. Ephesians is written to a church that is fairly wealthy, does well. There are slaves that live there, but uh, they are a pretty solidly provided for church and worldly circumstance. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we see not only in the beginning of 2 that though we were dead in trespasses and sin, can't pass over that, because we were dead in trespasses and sin, we were with the rest of the world, we deserved the wrath of God, but, verse 3, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. Not because of you, he has remade you in Christ. This is not a matter of testing you. This is a matter of what he's accomplishing within you. And we're reminded that again and again, even in these verses, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It is clear that grace has been given to you. You've been given grace that has resulted in faith, and this is not your doing. You have not accomplished this. It's the gift of God. It is not a result of works. It is nothing that you have done. It is His grace given to you, not for you to boast, for Him to be glorified. 
what one has, chapter 1 has said again and again, all of this is for the praise and the glory of God. And then we see in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We have been recreated in Christ. For what? Created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I want you to notice here, what your life is as a Christian is not just that you've been forgiven for sin. It's not just that you've been redeemed. It is not just that you will one day be made blameless and holy, but it is now that you've been recreated in Christ for a purpose, and that purpose is good works. It is to manifest the character and the person of God over earth, to return to have dominion over the earth, and that God reigns and rules, but sin is present and powerful and persuasive. And his people live on earth through the sin of earth to declare the goodness and the grace of God. So as you look at your Bible, it is not just about you have been forgiven and now you can do what you want. It is you have been redeemed to the praise and glory of God. You have been saved to the praise and glory of God. You have an eternal inheritance to the praise and glory of God. You have been recreated as Christ's work on earth to live here in good works that will be to the praise and glory of God. Were it not so hot, I would drag you through Ephesians 2 and 3. Not because you deserve it. You don't. You're a sinful people. But I would be gracious enough to do it for you anyway. But I'm not going to. But you could move on to look that the entire church is manifest for his praise and glory. And he has done that in his purpose in Ephesians 3. And so I want you to see here then if we have been reformed for the praise and glory of God and we've been recreated in Christ to display God on earth, that is our function on earth to live for his glory, to live to his praise, then as we live to his praise and glory, not because of what we have done, not because of works done by us, but even in Ephesians, according to his predetermined plans, good works that you ought to walk in, you know what the amazingness of Christ is? None of this is yours. None of this has been done by you. You haven't been made alive by him. You haven't had the opportunity for good works by him. You choose to do them even by his grace and that he is basically handing them to you. And he's going to reward you for walking in them. He's going to reward you for walking in them. God is like many of you as parents, not like me. Uh, and I often think I should be because God's more like that. Right? Right? Your kid like swims across the pool after swim lessons and you're like, you might be Michael Phelps. You might go to the Olympics. You're the best swimmer ever. I'm like, did you see the kid swim? It looked like he was drowning from one side of the pool to the other side of the pool. Like granted, he made it across and he's still alive. But I don't know if we should tell him he's going to be an Olympic athlete. Right? But what are you doing? I, I get why parents do it. You're encouraging them. You're telling them, you have done something great. You have, you have moved from something and, and accomplished it, right? And you love them, so you praise them. You're excited. Maybe some parents are so deceived, they even think, like, my kid is going to be an Olympian, right? They put their kids in gymnastics and sports, even though, like, less than 1% actually get scholarships. They're like, they're going to get a scholarship. They're going to do this. Maybe. What motivates that? Love. You love your kids. You see them through eyes that the rest of us don't see. Like maybe you see your kids swimming and you're having a vision of Michael Phelps 
swimming in the Olympics, and the rest of us are going, should we help him? Is he drowning? God looks at you through the eyes of Christ. He sees the eternal reward that you deserve because of what Christ has accomplished. And as you live in Christ, I know you think, you, really, I barely made it across the pool. I feel like I'm drowning. And he says, no, you are walking in the good works that Christ has accomplished and encourages you to do so all the more. And he will reward those things. Christian, it is worth living for the glory of Christ because Christ is not unfaithful enough to allow you to live for his glory on earth, to allow these slaves to live for his glory through pain and suffering. And there's nothing that results from that? No, there is reward. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 is one of the uh, clearest and easiest places to see this. Christian reward is not judgment of righteousness, but a display of God's grace in your life. This is him evaluating the grace that he has displayed for you. It says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid in Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that was done has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved by fire. He is saved in Christ. He is Christ. Remember, this is written to Christians. And so it is the truth that we agree and believe uh, that the only way in which you are saved is by the grace and faithfulness of Christ. And if you are saved, you live for the glory of God. But there is also lives that display greater glory. And we don't deny this. There are those who have displayed God's glory in a way that others haven't. Uh, those who suffer through things we can't imagine, right? I don't know about you, but my heart, knowing I had to preach this morning, there was no option for me to stay home, right? There was an option for me to wear a t-shirt, which I've never done preaching before. It's kind of weird. Uh, but I reminded myself, God's not partial, he doesn't care if I'm wearing a button-up shirt or not. Why do I? I'm wearing a t-shirt. It's stinking hot outside. But maybe your heart, like mine, was thinking, are there ways... Well, my heart wasn't thinking I could get out of this in any way. But maybe you were thinking, is there a way I could stay home? Is there a justifiable excuse? Like, right? If somebody calls me, what am I going to say? Right? Irene's got the pregnant card, and she's here. Right? She thought about it. She knew if you called her, what she going to say? Oh, I'm pregnant, the baby's crazy, you know, it's, it's a baby Chuck. You guys know how Chuck is. Like, what am I supposed to do? He's a fiery ginger. i got to stay in bed. No, but you work through to say, I'm going to come here, and that's great. Not a lot of people would choose to do that this morning, right? But nobody's writing a book about it. Nobody's like, one day in Menifee. It was 105, and people came to church. And the next week, it was like 89 degrees. And under a hot tent, they went still. Oh, glory be to God. Tell it to your children in coming generations. No, right? We're not impressed by the sacrifice. But God is thankful. And God is, is joyful that you would say, 
It is better to gather with the church in the heat. It is better to gather with the church through pain and suffering because God is worthy. There are other people who make it look to us as though uh, our good works mean nothing. It is uh, like a man named C.T. Studd. I'd encourage you to get a biography. His life is much more exciting uh, than I chose on a hot day to go to church. Uh, C.T. Studd was a man of wealth, uh, athletic ability. Uh, He was a man who could have done anything with his life. He could have hiked and biked. Uh, He could have spent all of his life playing cricket around the world, which is a popular game to the Brits. We rebelled from them, so we don't really keep up on cricket. But I assume it's something like baseball. Uh, He was really good at it. Uh, He was world-renowned for it. And because of circumstances in his life and uh, some things that happened to his brother, he chose to give his life to Christ in a way not many of us do. He joined missionaries in China. And he lived in China for the sake of the gospel to be declared. He, he chose to use his wealth to support him in missions. C.T. C. Studd had a famous poem. Maybe even if you don't know his name, you probably know this line. He says, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And C.T. Studd lived his life that way. He gave up the wealth and prosperity that he could have to support himself in missions. He lived not as a trust fund kid surrounded by his wealth, but as a trust fund kid living for the gospel of Christ in difficult places in the early late 18 and early 1900s. And we glamorize such choices. We, we think, man, only if I could do that, Only if I could live my life for Christ in such that way. You encourage yourself that I'm just kind of tied down and I have these issues. So I can't live for that kind of reward in Christ. I'll never receive that kind of reward in Christ. I can't be CT stud. I can't live like Shannon Hurley, our missionary in Uganda. I can't do that. Because I chose to take a job. And to marry a wife or a husband. I chose to have these kids. I can't live for the real glory of God like a missionary. I can't be one who books are written up. We glamorize and we think only if I could. And you might think, I can't. I can't live for real reward in Christ. I chose a life of suburbia. What reward could there be? I want to encourage you with what Paul says here. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8. And remember who it is written to. A slave bound geographically by his master. A slave bound with his day by his master. A slave who is forced to live under the rule and earthly reign of his earthly master. And a slave that is encouraged that as he does so with a sincere heart, as he does so not by eye service or people pleasing, but as a slave of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, as he slaves with good will toward his masters, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. Your faithfulness in Christ is not dictated by your current condition. Serve Christ knowing your eternal reward is not limited by your current condition. Knowing that whatever any man does, whether slave or free, God is faithful. If you look at the book of Colossians, he says it slightly different. In Colossians 3, 22 through 24, a similar passage. It's a parallel written book. 
He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He encourages them that whatever they do, work heartily. This heartily is, is the word soul. It's work soulfully. Work with your whole soul. In the same way Paul describes to do this with a sincere heart, with your whole heart in service as a slave, your whole heart in service to Christ, your whole heart with goodwill for your master and others, your whole heart redeemed and desiring to glorify Christ. He says here, work at whatever you do, heartily, soulfully, with all that you are for the glory of Christ. Because you know your reward and your inheritance. He proclaims you will be rewarded in Christ. And it is not because you gave up your life to die as a missionary. If you look at the glory of Christ and you say, I can only glorify Christ if I was to live as a missionary. There are one of two answers. You either are called as a missionary and you, you need to stop living a suburban life and submit to Christ and do what he's called you to do. Or you're trying to comfort yourself in suburbia that you can live a mediocre Christian life and ignore the commands of God because you're not a missionary. And I want to remind you here, whether you are slave or free, whether you are missionary or suburbanite, you live for the glory of Christ. And the reward and the glory of Christ is not about earthly things. Christ sees the heart. That's why he commands these slaves to work from the heart in a sincere love for Christ. It is not a matter of the things you accomplish on earth. It is a matter of the heart towards Christ and the works that he has before you. Many who will be rewarded like C.T. Studd, you've never read a book about. You didn't know. You didn't hear. God didn't use them in that way, in public display. But their reward is not limited because they are not made a public spectacle on earth. There are many missionaries you don't know. You don't know their name. You don't know what they did. There's no book written of them. Nobody has proclaimed their story because they didn't do it to have their story proclaimed. They did it for Christ, that he would be glorified, and he's glorified in it. Your reward is not based upon the current condition of your life. Were you a slave, you could still live for great reward in Christ. Would it be glamorous? Would it be easy? Would it be praised by men? No, it would be great suffering. Great suffering for the glory of Christ. And so how do you live such a life for the glory of Christ? If, if a slave can live that way for Christ, and a free man can live that way for Christ, if a suburbanite can live that way for Christ, and a missionary can live that way for Christ, how do you live for Christ in such a way that is seeking the reward that is in Him? Well, in, in the most simplest of sentences, I would say, by faith and repentance. You repent from sin. You hear what Christ has commanded you to live in, by faith, you depend upon Him and you live in that way. So when you hear the commands of Christ, you don't go, I don't know if I can follow that one or not. You live by faith and you say, I must live to glorify Christ in this. 
Jonathan Edwards wrote it this way. He resolved to do as he intended, to do at all times as he intended when his thoughts were most clearly on the gospel in another world. When he was thinking about what Christ had accomplished and what hope there is in eternity, and he purposed and planned, this is the way I will choose to live because of that. He chose to live that way when his heart said no, right? Like many of you this morning. Maybe it was just out of people-pleasing. Maybe you knew if you didn't show up at church this morning, you get called. Or maybe out of conviction, you don't wake up on a Sunday and think, do I go to church or not? You've already resolved in your mind because of the grace of Christ and the gospel and the commands to gather together. This is what we do. You don't look at it as something rewardable. You look at it as this is the Christian life. And that is the grace and the goodness of Christ. But it is not just going to church. You could show up to church every week and have a heart that is unchanged. You're just doing it because you're used to showing up. You show up lots of places every week, right? Out of habit. What is rewarded in Christ is a heart transformed in Christ that lives for Christ and it is not dependent upon your current condition. Let me turn to Colossians to help you see this. In Colossians 3, 7-17, through 17, the preface before we get to 3.22 where he commands husbands, wives, children, and slaves, and masters. He says, In these you too once walked, living in them, speaking of sin. But you now must put them all away. And then he gives a, a concise list of descriptors of sin. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them, but you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in after knowledge of it, sorry, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You've been recreated in Christ. And then we have a verse in context, often taken out of context. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave or free. But Christ in all, and in all, Christ is all and in all. Because Christ is all and in all, because though you might live as a suburbanite, because you might live white or black or Asian or anything else, because you might live under the labels of our society, you might live as Greek or Jew or Scythian or barbarian, you might live as a slave or as a free man. But in Christ, all are Christ's. And therefore they live, putting sin to death, and put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. Live in faith, 
And faith is not only the actions declared, but a thankfulness to God for what he has accomplished. Again and again, that's the refrain. You live in character. You live in the word of God. You let the rule of Christ reign in your heart over your emotions in one body, and you're thankful. You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly that you might know it and correct one another and praise God in it and sing the praises of God in it with thankfulness in our heart. And that you, in whatever you do, whether it be at church or at work or at home, you do everything in the name of Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. C.T. Studd said this also. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great to make for him. Christian, this is what causes my heart to struggle. I think how glorious would it be to be C.T. Studd or Adoniram Judson or Shannon Hurley. How glorious would it be to wake up knowing you live for the gospel? Over the last seven years, uh, as our church has come, in the last five as I've been uh, full-time supported, how glorious can it be to wake up and to live for that and to work for that every day? But the reality is, my dependence is still on Christ. I think of men who have given up great things. I think, can you even give up little things? Can you just give up small things? Can you give up the preferential things that no one's going to judge you for because you know you would live for the greater glory of Christ if you let those things go? Can you choose to be compassionate and humble and meek and patient? Can you choose to forgive one another? If someone has a complaint against you, can you not cut off relationship from them but forgive them in love in Christ? To go to them, to trust that the gospel of Christ is true. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then there is no other believer I can't forgive. No other believer I can't union in relationship with. There's no spouse that I can't be patient and kind with. No child that I can't raise to the glory of God because it's too difficult. No frustration that should come before me. If Jesus Christ has died for me and he is God, there is no sacrifice too great. But sometimes we relieve ourselves because we say we're not making those kind of sacrifices. I want to remind you in a passage that I started with in our introduction in 1 Peter. It says, Christian, you are free and do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Do not let little hidden sin hide little opportunities to glorify God in your affections and your devotion, and your emotion before Him. Choose to glorify Him in all things. Whatever you do, working with a full soul, working with your soul all in because your reward is in Christ, working with your labor knowing that you are serving Him according to His plan, under His righteousness, for His glory, and He is faithful to reward those that are His. If this can be commanded of slaves... It can be commanded to suburbs. If this can be lived out by missionaries and slaves, this can be lived out by suburbanites. And I know you're thinking, no, I can't. I can't do it. I want to remind you, whatever it is you're thinking you have to give up in your life, you need to wrestle through with the body of Christ. 
You need to start being honest with people. Start working through those things that you feel are overwhelming to you and you can't live without them or you can't do them without sin. You need to listen to Christ and it says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. When? If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession and repentance is an act of sanctification, not salvation. Yes, at one point, the, the, the Spirit of God regenerated your heart to save you. But repentance and confession was not a one-time act. It is an ongoing act of sanctification. It is the grace of God in your life. Christian, you're not living as a slave, and I'm thankful for that. But you need to know just as much as the slave that he's faithful, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Because there is joy in living for the glory of Christ. And by God's grace for us, it is often immediate joy. But even when it's not, there is eternal reward. If Jesus Christ be God and He died for me, there is no sacrifice that can be too great for me to make for Him. And the overwhelming reality of that is in that He will reward you out of grace. Let's pray that God would be so gracious to not just let us hear with our ears, but to know and to live in our hearts His faithfulness. Father, we thank You that You are a God who is faithful and good. We thank You, Lord, that You continue uh, to allow us the grace to gather. And we thank You, Lord, that uh, this week is not as hot as last week. We thank You, Father, that You have been kind. We pray, Lord, that You would give us endurance through life, not just in hot summer days that we, we feel the weight of now, uh, but in parenting, uh, in living as husbands and wives, as living in, in the face of many temptations, uh, much freedom to us that we could live in, in ways that would hide our sin. I pray, Father, you would help us, Lord. I thank you that we are not slaves to men. I thank you that we are slaves to your Son. I pray that you would help us to live as slaves for your glory. And I thank you, Father, that you are so kind and faithful that you not only give us grace in this life and greater joy, but you reward us for just living in faithfulness to what you have accomplished. I pray, Father, you would help us to do so all the more for the sake of your name and your glory and your praise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.